Again, good morning. Um, my name is Andy Owens. I'm one of the pastors over at Providence Baptist Church on Glenwood Avenue. Uh, it's a joy to be with you again. Um, I was here near the end of June, uh, but that time I didn't have the privilege of bringing my family with me. My wife Erica and our four kids are here, as well as my mom visiting uh, from South Carolina. We have a birthday uh, in the family this weekend. So um, again, uh, it's our, our privilege and joy to be here. So um, you've probably heard that Square foot campus and RTP. Um, they, the company's planning to invest a billion dollars in the campus, so they're going to employ upwards of 3,000 people. Uh, when a company like Apple comes to town, right, we expect a significant impact both to the economic landscape, to the region, and to individual lives. Um, one side of my family is from upstate South Carolina. And one of my uncles, um, uh, in the 1990s, early 90s, had, he worked for the railroad, and he had just built a new house in Greer, South Carolina. And on June 23rd of 1992, BMW, a uh, German automotive company, announced that they were going to build their first ever manufacturing facility outside of Germany, and it was going to be in Greer, South Carolina. So after purchasing my uncle's home, at a significantly higher price than the appraisal value. And building a plant, they then employed him for the next 25 plus years until he recently retired. Uh, so BMW's arrival drastically impacted my aunt and uncle's uh, life and family. And of course, they weren't the only ones, right? Um, since 1992, the uh, plant has had five major expansions. Uh, now employs over 11,000 people. Um, facility that manufactures cars obviously needs lots of other suppliers and producers around it. It's um, uh, yeah, it requires a lot of a lot of different parts to make a car. Uh, it's estimated um, that there are 400 auto-related companies in South Carolina that employ combined 66,000 people. Some people have even pointed to the arrival of BMW plant um, as a major factor, if not the major factor, in the revitalization of Greenville, the city of Greenville nearby, uh, and it's certainly what was behind Clemson University's um, new international, what was it called, International Center for Automotive Research in Greenville, right? It's not in Clemson, it's closer to the BMW plant than it is to Clemson's campus. Um, a few years ago, South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster said, quote, the presence of this company has changed everything in the trajectory and future of our state. The investment is going to grow and continue to produce positive results that no one could have dreamed at the time. While the arrival of a company like BMW or Apple makes a big wake in a community and in an economy, that wake pales in comparison to the change produced by the gospel of God when it comes in power. This morning, we're going to be considering 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll see that this message of Jesus Christ, when it comes in the power of God, it makes an impact that's visible, that's ongoing, that's eternal. My hope this morning is... Um, 
It's not just that we would know what kind of change the gospel produced in Thessalonica, but that we ourselves would be changed by this powerful, joy-producing message of salvation. So let me pray one more time and ask for God's help. Father God, again, we pray that we would be taught of you. Pray that you would guard me from saying anything out of step with your word. Pray you would help each one of us to have ears to hear. Pray that the word would fall in fertile soil, would take root, would bear fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. We just ask that the words of my mouth, the meditations of each one of our hearts would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, as you open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, you should know that uh, Paul and his missionary companions didn't have um, nearly three decades to make an impact on the city of Thessalonica like the BMW plant has in upstate South Carolina, uh, but they didn't need three decades. In fact, they only had about three weeks to preach and teach the gospel in this ancient city before some Jew jealous Jewish leaders stirred up a riot, attacked at least some of the new believers, and chased these evangelists out of the city. Now, immediately before coming to Thessalonica, Paul and his companions had already been shamefully treated, had suffered in the city of Philippi. Uh, and then after they left Thessalonica, uh, Paul and his companions were chased down by these um, leaders of the Jewish synagogue to the next town, Berea. From there, the Christians had to send Paul off quickly. Uh, they sent him to Athens, where he was going to wait for Silas and Timothy to come to meet him a little later. And it was, it was there in Athens, when they were all together again, that Paul says, and you can see it's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he couldn't bear it any longer, not knowing how were these new believers doing. We were only there for a few weeks. We preached, they believed, but there's so much opposition, so much affliction. I wonder if it was in vain. So he sent Timothy back up the Greek peninsula to Thessalonica. He himself went further south to Corinth. And the letter we're looking at today is what Paul wrote with Timothy and Silas when they came back to Paul at Corinth and reported how these Thessalonian Christians, these baby Christians were standing fast in the Lord. And how people in the whole surrounding region were talking about their faith in Jesus, even in the face of opposition. So as we read it, you can, you can feel the gratitude that Paul feels towards God for this ongoing, visible change in their lives. So let's read chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians together. Paul... Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly remembering you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. 
For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul, um, like he normally does, begins this letter. Now, he, he is writing with his co-laborers, Silvanus, that's the Latinized version of Silas, and Timothy. So the same uh, trio of missionaries who brought the gospel to Thessalonica are now writing back. Um, and the first thing I want you all to see and be encouraged by this morning is to be known for the right things, okay? I want you to see how Paul remembers these believers, the things he focuses in on, and let that be an encouragement to us to be known for the right things. Okay, this is from verses 2 through 5. Um, he, he begins by thanking God, right? We give thanks to God always for you. Paul wants to encourage, he wants to spur these believers on, and right out of the gate, the way he does it is he says, the change that we see in you that makes us so glad, it comes from God. He says, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Don't overlook the fact that Paul gives thanks when he's praying, right? It's good for us to feel gratitude in our hearts to God, but expressing it with our lips heightens our joy, and it's a pleasing sacrifice to our king. Psalm 107 says, let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. And notice also that Paul mentions a location, right? Uh, these men are likely composing this letter from Corinth, uh, but he says that they pray and thank God, quote, before our God and Father. Don't forget the wonder of this, brothers and sisters, that no matter where you are on earth, if you are in Christ, you are always only one prayer away from the throne of grace in heaven. Like Paul, we can have the same boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Christ. When you pray in Jesus' name, the most important, the most powerful, the most gracious person in the universe is giving you his ear. But the main thing to notice is what Paul specifically remembers and thanks God for here in verse 3. Remembering your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, when I think of you believers, and we were torn away from, I think of three things, ready? Faith, love, and hope. These three words appear together more than a half dozen times in the New Testament, most clearly in 1 Corinthians 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. These three realities are so close to the heart of what it means to be a Christian that John Calvin called this triad, faith, love, and hope, quote, a brief definition of true Christianity. This is what it means 
to be a follower of Christ, to be marked by faith, love, and hope. And Paul doesn't just remember these things as abstract qualities. He celebrates what they produce in the lives of the Thessalonian church. He says, remembering your work of faith. Your work of faith. That is, their faith in Christ was producing good works in their lives. Their faith in Christ was leading them to work good to all people and to one another. Because of their faith in Christ, they were bearing fruit in every good work, right? They were walking in the good works that God had planned beforehand because they trusted in Jesus. And he says, and your labor of love, right? Receiving God's love in Christ makes dead hearts come to life. It makes stony, cold hearts, soft and warm. God first loving us empowers us to love him and to love his people. Love is the defining mark of a disciple of Jesus. Sure, you've heard before Jesus' words from John 13, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And what it looks like, practically, is labor. We expend energy, and we expend our very selves for others, for their good. The fact that we have a phrase in English, labor of love, shows what love is at its essence, right? It entangles itself in the troubles of others. It burdens itself with the burdens of others to offer help and relief. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and he says we thank God also for your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope, according to the Bible, is not wishful thinking. Hope is a confident expectation that God always keeps his promises. Biblical hope is a certainty that we will see his face one day. It's oriented to the future and it's grounded in the faithfulness of God. And this hope is what keeps us going. We continue steadfast in faith and in love because we have hope. We can endure trials we can persevere in hardship because we know our future with Christ is secure. Now, before Timothy came back, Paul had felt some insecurity, right, about how these believers were doing. But it's clear now that he is thanking God with confidence. Look at verse 4. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Literally, Paul says, we thank God knowing your election. It's a short phrase. Now, the idea that God had chosen these believers beforehand for salvation may sound surprising. It may even sound jarring to us. But Paul says it clearly here. And it's a teaching we just can't ignore if we seek God with our Bibles open. Just a few examples. Deuteronomy 7, which is... Is quoted again in chapter 14. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you 
and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. In his first letter to Peter, uh, in his first letter, Peter writes to those who he calls elect or chosen exiles. He tells them in chapter 2, you, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. There are a lot of questions about God's purpose of election that I won't try to dive into today, but I, I think sometimes we stumble over this doctrine because we approach it from a philosophical perspective. But we can see here and elsewhere in Paul that he speaks of God's election in conjunction with his love. For we know, brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you. Or Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul can't even contain himself. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in, in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Which that last phrase means because he wanted to. Because his heart is full of love. Paul teaches God's electing love as a basis for our assurance, as a reason for our praise. The question that we should ask, though here when we read it, is how in the world could Paul say we know that God has chosen you, right? If election is God's secret, eternal, unconditional choice, how can Paul say we know that he's chosen you? Well, he gives the answer in verse 5. He tells us how we knew. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now this description um, could describe the manner of Paul and Silas and Timothy's preaching and ministering the word, and that's how some, many interpreters take it. But I think it makes more sense to see it as a description of how the Thessalonian Christians received the word, since He's explaining his confidence that they really are chosen by God, loved by God. And since the rest of the chapter is about their response to the message, how they receive the message. Uh, yesterday, a gentleman stopped by our house to see if I would be willing to meet with a representative from a window company. Uh, just to see their products, to hear about their promotion. Um, he, said, he was trying to assure me there won't be any pressure, right? So what he said was, hey man. If you aren't interested, you can just say, no thanks, and he'll just move on to the next conversation, right? These people in Thessalonica, they could have said, no thanks to this message, just moved on. But when they heard the message, it came with divine, heavenly power to give life and light. Specifically, it came with the power of the Holy Spirit of God bringing life from the dead as they heard and believed. It came with, Paul says, full conviction, great assurance. They were utterly convinced of the truthfulness of this message and of their need for the Savior and of Christ's ability and faithfulness to save 
That's how Paul could say, we know that he's chosen you. If you ride uh, down uh, Interstate 85, or I guess maybe up Interstate 85, uh, depending on your perspective, I guess, uh, in upstate South Carolina, around mile marker 68, if you look off to the northwest side of the road, uh, you'll see a big manufacturing facility. There'll be BMW flags flying out front. You can confidently know what they are producing inside those walls, right? Um, if you see a person who has received the love of God in the gospel, whose life is marked by faith and love and hope and the tangible results they produce, you can have confidence that you are looking at a person who has been born again by the Spirit of God into the kingdom of God. Second exhortation this morning from verses 6 through 8 is to receive and pass on the gospel. Receive and pass on the gospel. You may have heard before um, that the Dead Sea is dead because it is a terminal basin or a closed basin. Uh, that's new terminology to me. I learned another new word looking this up. It's an endoric basin. Uh, anyone who's maybe specialized in geography might know what that means. That, in layman's terms, means water flows in, but it doesn't flow out. Okay? Um, so as water evaporates out, it leaves more and more sediment behind. The water becomes too salty to sustain life. And it's a helpful illustration to us as believers because it's a warning against receiving the gospel like water flowing in but not passing the gospel on to others who still need to hear water flowing out. This was not the case in Thessalonica. Notice in verse 6, they both received the word and imitated a way of life. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Right? Paul could say, imitate me as I imitate Christ to the Corinthians for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Receiving the gospel involves hearing and understanding and believing words. It's a message about God's forgiveness and love in Christ. But it also involves being changed and beginning to model your life after the Lord and after other believers. Paul says it in multiple places Philippians 4, verse 9 is one of my favorites. What you have learned, learned, and received, and heard, and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. There's a message that you learned and received, and there's a life that you heard and saw. A, mess, a life that adorns the gospel that we believe. And because the gospel wasn't just coming in, but was also going out, these believers both shared the word and modeled this new way of life. Look at verse 7. So that, this is the result, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Those regions make up basically what we know as modern day Greece. There's the example, right? Transformed life that adorns the word. And then look at verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Literally, the word of the Lord was trumpeted 
forth from the church at Thessalonica. It was loud and it was clear, like a bugle call, like a trumpet being sounded. These new believers, in the face of opposition, were sharing God's word with others. And others were talking about and imitating their changed lives. I hope you see this morning, brothers and sisters, how these believers were like a conduit. The message and the power to live a new life flowed in, and the message and the power to live flowed out to others. One key idea in these verses has to do with what they imitated and modeled. Namely, they received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. It needs to be said um, that being called out of the dominion of darkness, this is how Paul describes our salvation in Colossians 1, being called out of the dominion of darkness, rescued from it, and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. While it is joy-producing beyond words, while it is more significant than anything else in the world, it may not make your life easier or better in this world. It may not make you healthier or wealthier in this world. In fact, it may make your life a lot harder. Jesus said, John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. On their first missionary journey, Paul and Silas, this is the trip before this trip, uh, they were passing back through the towns they had recently visited, and they, they did this, ready, quoting Acts 14, strengthening the souls of the disciples, right? Souls need to be strengthened. They're going to say something. What are they going to say? Encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. God's word tells us over and over, not only to expect opposition and suffering, but even to rejoice in it, to count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds, right? We will face trials in this world. This world is not a friendly place to those who belong to the next. But these trials are not without joy. You receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who empowers one to preach, to proclaim the gospel, gives joy to another who receives it. This is not a light-hearted, trivial, jovial, head-in-the-sand denial of reality. It's not what he means. This is the joy of God shared with those who turn and trust him. In one of the most famous parables in Luke 15, this passage about a lost sheep, and a lost coin, and a lost son, often referred to as the prodigal son, Jesus says multiple times that there is joy in heaven when one sinner repents and turns to God. As John Stott put it, wherever the gospel goes and people respond, there is joy. Outward opposition and inward joy. Joy that comes from God. Now, I'm not sure who first said this. I think I heard it from a pastor and author named Robbie Gallaty. But he says, when the gospel came to you, it was on its way to someone else. 
When the gospel came to you, it was on its way to someone else. We're not meant to be a terminal basin, a closed basin like the Dead Sea, right? But the gospel is a message that offends human pride. It will inevitably arouse hostility. The question is, will we keep listening to it and will we keep speaking of it? Will we live out before the world around us with a joy that can only come from God, His power? It's good news. My final encouragement this morning is from verses 9 and 10. Turn to serve and wait. Turn to serve and wait. And this is really a continuation of the previous section where Paul had described people everywhere as telling him. Right? He says, I don't have to say anything about what happened in Thessalonica because they tell me um, the way the gospel had changed the believers there. Uh, here he's recounting how other people were summarizing what happened there, okay? This may be the most significant description um, of the change that took place because all the other change, in a sense, um, was affected and caused by this change that we're going to see in uh, verses 9 and 10. If the other changes are like earthquake quaking and volcanoes erupting, which are really big deals, this is like the seismic shift of plates deep beneath the earth's surface that causes the earthquake, causes the volcanic eruption, right? And there's three key words, turn, serve, and wait. These people, like all people, had to turn back to God because they were previously going their own way. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. They were bowing down to idols, ignoring the True God, they were far from Him, but they turned to God in repentance, knowing they had forsaken their Creator, worshipped and served created things. They returned to serve the living and true God. That means they recognized He alone is God. There is no other, and that He alone can give life. Don't misunderstand that word serve there in verse 9. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. We don't serve God by offering Him anything. Uh, he Himself gives life and breath and all things to all mankind, right? He doesn't need anything from us. The way we serve God is by bringing our every need to His all-sufficient grace, to His strength. We honor Him by depending on Him. Yielding to him is our only hope and is our king. And Paul can't talk about them turning from idols to God without mentioning the heart of the gospel, which is faith in Jesus, who died and rose again. Look again at verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Biblical repentance or turning back to God, always involves spiritual sight of Jesus, sight with the eyes of our hearts. We turn away from sin, back to God, knowing that Jesus, the eternal Son, the only Savior, died the death that we deserved. He was buried, and on the third day, He rose in power. We know by faith that we are turning back to a gracious and forgiving King, and that there is plentiful redemption 
abundant redemption and forgiveness with him, we turn aware that we deserve judgment, but confident that he will extend grace and forgiveness. And I would just encourage you, don't take this for granted. If you are a Christian, if you've grown up being a part of a church, even if you aren't a Christian, you've probably heard this message many times. Don't stop wondering. Don't stop standing in awe. This truth that God would justify the ungodly through the death and resurrection of His Son, that He would offer forgiveness freely and fully by faith alone, by grace, through faith, should stun us and it should humble us again and again. And notice how this chapter ends with a future orientation, right? Like the Thessalonians, all true believers, um, we, we trust in what Christ has done on the cross and His resurrection to bring us back to God, but we also anticipate what we, He will do. We long for His return. That's part of what it means to be a Christian in this world is to know that we belong to the next, right? Our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring us safely through the storm of God's judgment into everlasting joy. So friends, um, I'll close by asking you, when your pastor or your mom or dad or youth minister or Christian friend or Sunday school teacher or whoever it is remembers you before God's throne of grace, when they go to God on your behalf in prayer, could they give thanks to God for these sorts of things? Are these sorts of changes evident in your life? Do you have a faith that works, a love that labors, and a hope in Christ that keeps you going no matter what storm may be swirling around you? Do you imitate other believers? And do you live in a way that others can imitate you and grow more like Jesus? Is your life marked by an unshakable joy comes from God. None of us get it right all the time. Life in Christ is not free from failures. It's actually a life of confessing sin, resting in Christ again and again, day after day. But if these things that we've read in 1 Thessalonians 1 aren't at least evident in our lives, we should ask, are there idols that I need to turn from this morning? In our culture, in our world, in the West, uh, idols, honestly, are more subtle, harder to detect than idols of wood and stone. Um, ask yourself, is there anything that I find my identity in other than God and this gospel? What am I known for? What do I want to be known for? Is there anything that you give your heart and your affections to other than God that if this thing was taken away, you can't imagine ever being happy. Is there any area of your life that you are in vain trying to keep from his all-seeing eyes? If there is, he, from his gracious throne, is inviting you to turn to him this morning. Whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, he says, turn from sin. Trust my forgiving, redeeming love. Trust Christ, 
his son whom he raised from the dead, he will bring you back to God. And as a church family, I encourage you to ask, are we known for the right things? Are we known as a people who have been visibly changed by the arrival of the gospel? Are other people hearing the word of the Lord because of our example and our testimony? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a speaking God. We thank you that you have put your words into Scripture so that we can read and we can hear your voice. And I pray that you would show the power of your voice today in each of our hearts. I pray for life through faith in Christ. God, I pray for faith that works. God, I pray for love for you and love for others. God, that would lead us to expend ourselves. God, I, I pray for hope that's unwavering and unfailing. It keeps us going even in the darkest days. God, I pray that our lives will be marked by an eager longing to see Jesus return. To live forever in your presence in the new heavens and the new earth. God, it's you that we long for. You are our joy and our reward. And so we thank you for your word. We pray it would have its proper effect in our hearts. And you would work through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.